So as we think tonight about this, we think about the way of righteousness is life. That particular verse reminds us that this is the life of the soul. It's our spiritual life. It's our eternal life. Again, notice that verse. In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof, or on that pathway of righteousness, there is no death. Again, only based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are truly made spiritually alive. But a person who is in the righteousness, or is in the way of righteousness, knows they are in the way of righteousness. This is not a hidden secret. A person who has been saved, a person who is in Christ, is fully aware of their righteousness. They're fully aware that they have in fact been accepted by God. Now we know the Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter number 7. I'm going to just take a detour here before we get into the text. But Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14 tell us about those that are in this way. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. The Bible says this, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So we know... That Christ is our righteousness and our holiness and the wisdom that we have is in him, the way, the truth, and the life. He is not only the only way to eternal life spiritually, but he is also the way of life now. So when we consider and we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, he has made me spiritually alive. And yes, eternally, I am alive in Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved. But understand that we are also to live this life in the understanding and the realization of Christ. Now, one of the great promises, the second half of this verse in Proverbs 12, 28 is this. And in the pathway... There is, or thereof, there is no death. So wherever the way of righteousness is, the way of righteousness is Christ, there is no death on that pathway. Now what death is he talking about? He's talking about there's no condemnation. We just sang that song, and can it be? That song reminds us that there is no more condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We have been justified by His righteousness. The demands of the law should have been executed upon us. We should have been held responsible for what the law required. But Jesus Christ fulfilled that law perfectly. And thus, we are in Him because He fulfilled the law. What is this? No more death or no death there. Spiritual death will never, ever, ever prevail over those who have passed from death unto life spiritually. In other words, if I am on the pathway of eternal life right now, I will never, ever be on the pathway of death. Now that's a great truth tonight. 
I have the promise that there is no second death for me. I will never die spiritually. Death has no power over the believer. Life and immortality, eternal life, are the effects of being in the way of righteousness. Now, I mentioned to you that being in the way of righteousness also deals with not just our eternal state, but I believe the Bible shows us that it also how we conduct ourselves in this life. This passage is connected to what we read there in James 4 in our scripture reading in the fact that conduct is mentioned here. How a man lives his life is given to us in verses 23 through 28. So yes, we have the promises of eternal life. We have the promises of the way of righteousness that we will, know, we will never face spiritual death. But do not lose sight of the reality here that because you're in the way of righteousness, it ought to affect the way you live. There's too many who are being taught out there that I can accept some kind of God or have, have some type of holiness, but it's not going to affect the way I live. That's not from Scripture. So we do understand that as we read these verses, they're all based on the premise that this is the way people who are in the way of righteousness should live. They should live a life that demonstrates that they are in fact on that path. If you look with me at verse 23 of Proverbs 12, it says, A prudent man concealeth knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaimeth foolishness. We might summarize this verse simply this way. He that is wise does not seek to proclaim what he knows, and it's his honor that he doesn't. He that is wise doesn't seek to proclaim his knowledge, and it's his honor that he does not. You see, what the, the Bible here, the verse is talking about, the person who communicates or proclaims his knowledge just to show off what he knows really isn't that wise. Now, one that communicates knowledge for the help of someone else or to edify another person, but he conceals that if it's just to show people to receive commendation for himself or to be commended. In other words, the prudent man says, I'm not just going to say it so that I can get attention to myself, but yet the foolish man proclaims his foolishness. In other words, if a man is wise and he's prudent, he will carefully avoid anything that seeks self-exalting. Now, how dangerous is this in our world today? How often do we see man exalting himself that man gets the attention? Man takes every opportunity to show how much he knows, how much he's learned. There's nothing wrong with doing that if it's for the demonstration of the glory of God or to edify someone else. But we should never use what we know or our knowledge for self-exaltation or that we might receive some type of glory from it. That's the idea here. The prudent man conceals his knowledge. He doesn't go around saying, look what I know, so that everybody says, man, what an, what an intelligent, smart individual you are. No, that's what the foolish man does. The wise man only communicates that which edifies others. That's the general meaning of that text. Perfect wisdom conceals that which is being spoken for self-glory. 
All right? The perfection of wisdom or the perfect wisdom conceals what is only being spoken for self-glory. Don't speak so that you're glorified. Verse 24, The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. This is an interesting, interesting verse. Uh, it deals with diligence and slothfulness. Now, much in a similar tone to verse 23, you'll notice the connection here between the heart of fools and the slothful. Now, the heart of a fool by its very nature leads to foolish actions. In other words, a man who speaks foolish things often is defined by foolish actions. The fool does not desire to hide his foolishness. Does that make sense? The fool does not desire to hide his foolishness. In other words, he thinks his foolishness is right. Now think about that for a moment. You can be so void of a good sense of what's good and evil and honor and dishonor that you don't even know how to hide what's foolish. A fool continues to speak foolish words and it leads to foolish actions. They are void in the management of themselves. Now, can you imagine not being able to manage yourself? Now, it's a difficult thing. It's difficult to manage ourselves. But imagine not being able to, to manage what you say or what you do. Over in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter number 10, these are, uh, these are interesting verses. But I think it expresses this, this character here that's the end of verse 23 and into verse 24. Ecclesiastes 10, verses 1 through 4 Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to everyone that he is a fool." If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. So really what he's saying here, and, and even back in our text, he that is foolish cannot avoid proclaiming his own foolishness, and it's shameful that he can't. All right? It's shameful that he cannot control proclaiming his own foolishness. Now that's what leads us into this verse 24, dealing with the hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Diligence is the way to honor. Diligence is the way to honor. There's a story of Solomon and Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 28. We won't turn there tonight for the sake of time, but I do want you to, to, to understand what's happening in that verse Solomon advances or lifts up Jeroboam into a higher place of ruler or leadership because he saw that Jeroboam was a very diligent and very industrious young man and he took care of the business that was given to him. Men that take great strides or do great things to tend to the little things, to tend to the, even the smallest things of life, 
Those things will lead to greater things being given to them. We know the biblical principle of being faithful in a few things, being made a ruler over many things. People that labor in the Word, for example, they labor in Word and doctrine. The Bible says they are worthy of double honor. And the earlier you become diligent while you're young and diligent in the Word, the more it will enable to rule and to guide later on. Diligence is becoming a a past tense in many ways. We're seeing more slothfulness than we are diligence from people. We're seeing people that say, listen, I really, this is just a small thing. You know, oftentimes when people ask you about young people, what, what what are some instructions you would give to the young? And that would be one of them. Study and learn to be diligent. Be diligent in what you do, even in the little things. Diligent even in the little things in your home. Young people as they're growing up in their home, take pride and and be diligent in the work that your hands are given to do. Often people say, I don't want to be involved in the small things, I just want the big things. The reality is diligent hands in the small things lead to rulership in the bigger things. Be diligent. But you see the opposite about the slothful. The slothful shall be under tribute. Now the word slothful there also has within it the meaning of being deceived. The slothful shall be brought low. Oftentimes the slothful are doing what? They're looking for the easy way. They're looking for the shortcut. They're looking for the way that how can I get the work done quickly without as much effort? Instead of living honestly, they end up living by their own deceit and eventually they'll be brought low. Those who are diligent, those who are honest, those who who are those who are diligent in the little things the Bible says, they will become masters, but those who are the fools will end up being servants. And we understand that, again, remember, this is all related to the way of righteousness. Spiritual life will lead to even a difference in how we conduct ourselves in our earthly life. Verse 25, heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. You know how important a good word is? Now, what is a good word? A good word is the word of God. You know how many people we come in contact with who just need a good word? They just need somebody to give them hope. Now, he deals with a subject here that is familiar to all of us. The Bible uses the word heaviness in the heart of man. It is a promise that all of us in this life are going to go through sorrowful, depressing times when our heart is heavy. And that's what Solomon is talking about here. He's talking about heaviness in the heart of a man makes it stoop. It makes a man bow down. I was thinking this week about what heaviness in in the heart is. And when when you think about that phrase, and to me that phrase means we're burdened down or we're loaded down with care. To have heaviness of heart means we have more than we can possibly carry, more than we can possibly endure. It's that feeling that we're going to sink under the weight 
of the load. But heaviness in heart is also or often the result of fear. We're fearful that of that load we're trying to carry. We're fearful of the amount of care, the burdens that we're carrying. Sometimes heaviness of heart is brought on in an instant when we go through a time of grief or we go through a time of sorrow, when we lose a loved one. Heaviness of heart comes on us almost immediately. So this word heaviness of heart, it can cover a, a spectrum of different things. Now today, we might refer to it, if we were to go to a doctor and the doctor tells us he probably wouldn't diagnose us with heaviness and heart, he might diagnose us with depression. He might say you are in a depressed state. Sometimes heaviness of heart actually disables us. In other words, we're not even able to do the very things which we know need to be done. That's what he means here. Heaviness in the heart makes a man or makes his heart stoop down. Have you ever met someone or have you ever been in a place where you've been so heavy in heart that even the comfort of a loved one or a conversation from a loved one didn't help? The answer is a good word maketh it glad. Make, what is the it? The it is the heavy heart. A good word makes it glad. The good word. So what is the cure for heaviness in heart, a good word from God. A good word applied by faith makes the heart glad. Now, sometimes you've got to speak that good word to yourself. One thing that believers need to remember, and every single one of us need to remember this, sometimes instead of waiting for someone else to speak a good word to you, speak the good word of faith, the good word of God to yourself. Remind yourself who you are in Christ. Remind yourself, I am in the way of the righteousness which is life, and on that pathway there is no death. When I've personally been in that state of heaviness of heart, it's not been another person that's been able to comfort me most times. It's been me going to the Word and speaking a good word unto myself. Not a self-motivational speech, but a good word that comes from God. Get out the Scripture, lay it out before you, and say, okay, Lord, I need your comfort today. And that's what he's talking about here, and it's that faith. We know what Jesus Himself said in Matthew 11, cast thy burden upon the Lord. He will sustain you. The good word of God. Now, what's the, what's the best word of God? The best word that God ever spoke is the gospel. The fact that I have been taken from death unto eternal life is the greatest word I'm ever going to hear. And those of us that have been saved by the grace of God, there is no greater word than the words and the gospel. When the gospel came unto you and the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and opened your ears to be able to hear and you're able to see and you're no longer blinded and you know that you have been brought into the family of God. Sometimes the greatest cure for the heaviness of heart is to remind ourselves about what we've been saved from. Remember, you have been saved from sin. You've been saved from the wages of sin. You've been saved from spending an eternity separated from God in a place called hell that burns forever. And you've been saved for His glory. The good word of the Lord 
It's designed to make our hearts glad. When we're weary, when we're burdened, when we're carrying loads that we can't carry anymore, we need to remind ourselves it's a good word. When we deal with another individual who's struggling, they don't need our words as much as they need the good word. They need the word of God. And by the way, sometimes, and this does happen, sometimes even in our most depressed state, in our heavy heart state, sometimes we even refuse to let the Word of God comfort us. But let the Word of God make your heart glad. Verse 26, The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduceth them. The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor. Now this is not saying that they're better people. What this is saying is that the righteous have within themselves an excellent character. Why do they have excellent character? Because they have real righteousness in them. Friends, listen, when you see the word righteous, that is righteous not based upon anything that that person has done. That is based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are only good because Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. That is why we have excellent character. The righteous is more excellent, he says, than his neighbor. He may not be richer in the world's goods. He may not be richer in what he owns or what he has or what he possesses, but he is richer than the unrighteous neighbor because he has the grace and comfort of the Spirit. Listen, I've said it many, many times. There have been things in my own life and our family's life that I don't know where we would be without the comfort of the Holy Spirit of God. And many of you listening tonight know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, had it not been for the Spirit, you don't know how you would have gotten through that situation. You don't know how you would have endured. You don't know how you even... You, you look back today and you say, I would not have even been able to get up out of bed had it not been for the Spirit of God comforting me. The righteous, they're not better people. They're richer because they have the righteousness of Christ. They have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. When you understand the excellency it is to have Christ's righteousness in you, it ought to have a substantial impact on your conduct. Remember, we don't do what we do to draw attention to ourselves. We don't give the knowledge of the Scripture so that people will commend us. We do it because of the excellency of God. We do it that Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate price for us, the result of His righteousness makes us look and say, listen, we ought to be able to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Now look what he says, but the way of the wicked seduceth them. So on the flip side of the righteous doing well because of their righteousness, wicked men do harm to themselves because they walk in a way that deceives them. Do you ever, have you ever noticed that the wicked seem to be walking and they seem to enjoy walking in the way that they're walking? They believe it's the right way. I'm not sure we think about this a lot, but when we see somebody acting wickedly and we see somebody who's maybe speaking wickedly or doing, we think they don't know what they're doing. 
you realize that they know exactly what they're doing. They believe that's the way. That's what seduction is, folks. Seduction means to be deceived. It means to be drawn away from that which is right into that which is wrong. The wicked who are apart from God, who are the unrighteous, they are walking in a way, the only way they know. And they think it's right. Much like our beginning verse. They believe they're on the right way, but really what they're on is the pathway of death. You understand that even though the wicked walk and they believe that they're on the right way, they will never reach what they're reaching for. The wicked may reach for a certain salary. They may reach for a certain status. They may reach for a a certain thing that brings them pleasure. But do you know they'll never ultimately reach what they were hoping for. Why? Because it's all a lie. Folks, anything in this life that we believe can bring us lasting joy is a lie. It's apart from Christ. If this world offers us anything that we think, if I can just get that, I will have all the joy I could ever imagine. Everything in this world will leave you empty-handed. It'll leave you with what you thought when you got there. It wasn't really there. It's much like the mirage in a desert. A man will, will cross a desert and after he's been there so long, he will begin to gain. His thirst will increase. He'll become so thirsty. He'll become so desperate for water. He'll begin to think that he actually sees water on the horizon. And he'll think he's getting closer. And when he gets to the place that it should have been, it's not there. That's where the way of the wicked ends up. And sadly, even tonight, there are people even in the spiritual realm who believe they're on the way of righteousness, but what they're actually on is the way that leads to hell. They're on the way that leads to death. They are trusting in some pathway that they've set out for themselves. Friends, sometimes the pathway of religious The religious pathway is often even more dangerous than the typical way of the wicked. A person who thinks this pathway is bringing me life is actually on the pathway that brings death because the only pathway that brings life is the pathway of Jesus Christ. That's the only pathway that brings life. And on His path, there is no death. Verse 27, a familiar person is brought up again, the slothful man. An interesting verse. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. Kind of the overriding theme of this verse is that the slothful man despises the providential hand of God. The slothful man despises the providential hand of God. The slothful man, notice what it says about this, roasteth not that which he took in hunting, In other words, this man, literally, it's talking about hunting, it's talking about he has meat. But that which he roasts is not what he himself took in hunting. No, it's what somebody else earned. So somebody else took for him. The slothful man lives on the labors of other people, lives on the work and the effort of other people. But these slothful men, if they do take anything by hunting... They don't find comfort and they don't find enjoyment in it. 
As a matter of fact, I believe that if we're not careful and understanding the, the, the providence of God, God in His providence even provides for the most wicked. The people that have food on their table today and they have provision, they have shelter, they have all these things. Uh, people look and they say, well, they're not even believers because God, even by His providential hand, has given unto even the slothful, to the wicked, and they refuse to acknowledge and even despise His hand of provision. You see, the slothful and the wicked man can't even find enjoyment in God's providence. But the substance of a diligent man is precious. Now I wrote this down. The substance of a diligent man, though it be not great, is still precious. The righteous man knows whatever I have, whatever God has given me, it's good. It's good. God gives in varying amounts. There's no human explanation for it. But if God gives little, it's good. If God gives much, it's good. Everything that God gives is good. It's what we might even refer to as our, our daily bread or the manna. You think about the, the Israelites in the wilderness and even though they were stubborn and even though they were rebellious, God provided manna for them every single day. God gives according to His riches and glory. So we come back to this verse that we began. In the way of righteousness there is life, and in the pathway thereof there is no death. This way of righteousness we learned back in Matthew when we read that as we began, that it is a straight path. It's the way of righteousness. You see, God's commands are not given to us to be burdensome. God's commands are given to us as the way in which we ought to walk. It's interesting that when it talks about walking in this life or in Christ, it seems to describe often a pathway or a way. You see, there is a way that is right. There's a way that's ho- there's, that is holy. There's a way that is just. There's a way that is good. It's a pathway. It's a pathway that in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet described it in a beautiful way. Isaiah 35, 8, he described the pathway of the righteous. Isaiah 35, 8 says this, And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. It's a highway. It's called the way of holiness. We know that in the Old Testament, we know, we learn that Israel came back from two occasions of captivity. The first time they were in Egypt. The Lord led them through the wilderness. He brought them out. He provided a way out of Egypt. The second captivity is when they went into Babylon. And we're studying a little bit about this on Sunday mornings. 
how the prediction of them going into Babylonian captivity, but yet God would bring them out of that captivity. But the Lord restored them into their land. We need to understand that it is in the grace of God that He has provided a pathway. He has provided a way for His people. Friends, this is a way of divine power and it's given by divine authority. In other words, if God says this is the way, it is the way. We don't have to struggle tonight wondering, are we on the right path? If you are in Christ tonight, if there has been that time, that moment when you repented of your sins and you believed on Christ alone, you are on or in the way of righteousness. You are in the pathway of life. It is the only way of eternal life. But it also ought to be the way in which we live our lives even now. It is the way we find our satisfaction. It is the way in which we see and realize and are thankful for the favor of God in our life. Just look at that verse again that we started with, Proverbs 12, 28. And just let's look at this as we finish up. In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof there is no death. The way of righteousness is a path that shines brighter and more bright as the day approaches when Jesus Christ comes again. We learned all the way back in Proverbs chapter number 4, Many months ago, in verses 18 and 19, here's what it says. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. We realize that one day we are, the Lord does not return, we are going to pass off of the scene of life. In this world. But this path of righteousness, this way of righteousness goes on into the land of eternal life. And we say this often here, and I will repeat it again, that eternal life is a present and precious possession right now. I don't get eternal life when I die. I already possess it if I'm in Christ. I am already in Christ. I, if I'm on the way of righteousness, I am already in possession of eternal life. I have already entered in by that straight gate we read about in Matthew 7. Death, although real, and, and friends, you know, in, in, in the situation we're living in now, we're hearing more about death daily than probably we care to even hear about. When on your computer and on your television, you're being given a daily death count and you're being told how many people have died from this disease. I will tell you the one thing that's happening and the one thing I think may be happening with this is people are becoming more and more aware of the reality, no matter how you feel about this, that death is real. And death is not something that we can just pretend is not there. We understand that because death is real and we know that the wages of sin is death, we have comfort tonight in knowing that in the way of righteousness is eternal life. And one day, according to, the God, according to God's timing, 
According to His sovereign hand, He will determine when we step out of this life into the Father's house. He is our God and He is our God forever. And He will guide us even on that day when we step out of physical life into that now, that full realization of eternal life. I love what the Bible says in Psalm 48, 14. I love this verse. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even, even unto death. The guide we have in this life will be our guide, the same guide that guides us into and through death. We understand that this path of righteousness as we live it is not an easy path. And I would tell us tonight as believers, the path of the righteous, it's a difficult path. But thank the Lord above that we are in fact in the way of righteousness and not on the pathway of death. There is therefore no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank the Lord for His wonderful, amazing promises. We're going to conclude with our reading from the Valley of Vision, and then we'll finish with a a closing hymn. Uh, This is entitled, Resting on God. Resting on God, and it is chapter number 5. So if you need to find that in your book, if you have a copy, it's in chapter number 5, which is entitled, Holy Aspirations. And it's on page 234 of most editions of the Valley of Vision. And here's what it says. O God most high, most glorious, the thought of thine infinite serenity cheers me. For I am toiling and moiling, troubled and distressed, but thou art forever at perfect peace. Thy designs cause thee no fear or care of unfulfillment. They stand fast as the eternal hills. Thy power knows no bond, thy goodness no stint. Thou bringest order out of confusion, and my defeats are thy victories. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. I come to thee as a sinner with cares and sorrows to leave every concern entirely to thee. Every sin calling for Christ's precious blood. Revive deep spirituality in my heart. Let me live near to the great shepherd, hear his voice, know its tones, follow its calls. Keep me from deception by causing me to abide in the truth, from harm by helping me to walk in the power of the Spirit. Give me intenser faith in the eternal verities, burning into me by experience the things I know. Let me never be ashamed of the truth of the gospel, that I may bear its reproach, vindicate it, see Jesus as its essence, know in it the power of the Spirit. Lord, help me, for I am often lukewarm and chill. Unbelief mars my confidence. Sin makes me forget Thee. Let the weeds that grow in my soul be cut at their roots. Grant me to know that I truly live only when I live to Thee, that all else is trifling. Thy presence alone can make me holy, devout, strong, and happy. Abide in me, gracious God. We're going to conclude with the hymn on page 190, What Wondrous Love Is This?